Father, we, we know that serving and service and burden bearing is perhaps something that not, not everybody really wants to do. But Lord, we pray that we would honor the example of Jesus. That Lord, we would remind ourselves that Jesus is great. And that Jesus chose to serve, particularly when he didn't have to. And Heavenly Father, we pray for an outpouring of your mercy and grace. Lord, we know that human beings are troubled and stained. That each and every one of us bear the burden of pride. And that, Lord, we need to experience humility and holiness. And Heavenly Father, we pray that you will keep us from hypocrisy. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end and supper being ended the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Ishkeriot Simon's son to betray him Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God rose from supper and laid aside his garments he took a towel and girded himself after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is greater than he who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The public ministry of Jesus has come to a close at the end of chapter 12, and the private ministry of Jesus begins in chapter 13, and it will go all the way to the end of the book, if you will, till the time of the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. If you'll remember at the very, very beginning of John's gospel, in the very first chapter, John told his readers, he, that is Jesus, came to his own and his own did not receive him. The first 12 chapters chronicle the miracles and the claims of Jesus and the tragic response of Israel's leadership and for the most part people they rejected their Messiah the nation and its leadership for the most part pushed Jesus away but a small band of followers disciples did receive him and John's gospel says and those that received him he gave the power to become the children of God now Jesus will give a practical demonstration of his love and service as his earthly ministry draws to a close on the night before his death 
And part of the challenge that each and every one of us have is to put ourselves in this circumstance. Remember, at this point, Jesus has some 15 hours to live. And you can imagine with 15 hours to live, there's a sense of urgency, if you will. And like so much, Jesus has lessons that he still wants to impart to them. He will give them a practical demonstration of love and service. And Jesus seeks to reassure them of that enduring love that he has for them. The love that will serve them later. Love, by the way, and service are linked in the New Testament. So in this chapter, Jesus will impart lessons in humility. Lessons in holiness. But there's another important lesson that will have to be revealed and dealt with. And it's the lesson of hypocrisy. Like the Holy Grail of old, there are people who pursue love with an almost cult-like obsession. Each and every person seems to be given this opportunity and we're bombarded with the idea of, of, of the search for true love. John MacArthur writes, the modern world's version of love is unabashedly narcissistic, narcissistic, totally self-focused, shamelessly manipulative. It sees others merely as a means of self-gratification. And not surprisingly, he writes, not surprisingly, relationships between selfish people usually don't last. How true. Whether the relationship takes the form of a church between a selfish pastor and a selfish congregation, if it takes the form of a country with a selfish political system and selfish citizens, you can rest assured that relationships based on selfishness are doomed to failure. MacArthur writes, if a current partner fails to live up to expectations or they find someone more exciting, they move on People are takers, not givers. And humility is considered a weakness and selfishness of virtue. And when you live in a culture and a society where humility is considered a weakness and where selfishness is considered a virtue, you can rest assured that the culture will collapse. The Bible paints a very different picture of love. In sharp contrast to selfishness and self-serving and arrogance and conceit and the self-centered kind of love, the Bible teaches humility and self-sacrifice instead of pursuing pleasure first, its own good first. Biblical love pursues the good of the one loved, the interest of the one loved, instead of seeking to satisfy itself. It seeks to meet the needs of others. And Paul writes about this in that most memorable of chapters in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he pins these words familiar to most of you. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong that it suffers. And that kind of love requires a radical humility. A humility that manifests itself in, 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 in selflessness and radical service. And even in a culture that is beginning to collapse, there is one holdout typically manifesting that kind of love. You know who it is? It's moms for their children. It's grandmothers for their grandchildren. Mothers still retain this profound sense of motivation and humility and service. And sometimes you'll find selfless fathers. Sometimes you'll find selfless leaders. But Christians are challenged by their Savior in every generation to a radical humility and a radical holiness and an abandonment of hypocrisy. The Bible says that the biggest problem that human beings face is pride. 
which finds its manifestation in selfishness. We suffer from what I call humility deficit disorder. We live in a culture that seems to diseaseify everything. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God wants us in humility and in holiness to serve one another. In sharp contrast to the counterfeit, self-serving, self-promoting pride that passes itself off as greatness. And the passage in 1 Corinthians may be the greatest passage on love, but Jesus is now going to give us the supreme example of love. And the passage calls us to consider the riches of His love toward us, but there's also something disturbing and troubling perhaps even shocking. And that's the demonstration of that humility. And in the midst of the demonstration of the humility, the rejection of that love. What could be more amazing? In the end, John will give us clues of how we can respond to Christ's love and then how we can demonstrate that love. He sets the stage. Look at verse 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We Most of us know about the feast of Passover. This is the celebration that marks the sacrifice, if you will, the sacrifice of lambs for personal removal of guilt and sin. Jesus is going to be that sacrificial lamb. And John uses an expression repeatedly in the gospel. His hour. When Jesus knew that his hour had come. His hour is talked about in chapter 2, verse 4. In chapter 7, verse 30. In chapter 8, verse 20. But his hour is always referred to as in the future. It wasn't his hour. His hour had not yet come. His hour was yet future. And now it is in the painful present. The time for Jesus to depart the world and return to the Father has come. Now, what's interesting in part about that is Jesus is on a timetable. And the timetable is established by God the Father. His ministry has a beginning and a middle and an end. And now it finds itself at the end. And Jesus affirms the love of Jesus, even though Jesus must return to his Father and the glory of his Father. Jesus loves his own, it says, ice telos. The word telos literally means the point of perfection or the point of of completion. And most of you are going to be familiar with that word. We get the word telescope from it. When you look in a telescope, you look at the little end to the big end to see the end. And that's exactly what's being spoken of here. But it isn't the end of his life. It's the measure of his love that is utterly, completely, perfectly, clearly Jesus loves people. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But here it says he loves not only the people in the world, but he loves his own with a perfect, eternal, redeeming love. A love that defies description and explanation. Paul the Apostle describes this love in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 as surpassing or going beyond knowledge or understanding. And I think the NIV captures the intent translating this. He now showed them the full measure or the full extent of his love. And that's the point. Jesus has come to a place where finally he is going to show them the full measure. And that's the question. How far is Christ's love willing to go? To a place of humility, to a place of sacrifice, to a place of selflessness, And we see the motivation for service, pride or people. In verse 2 it says, And supper being ended, and the supper that's being referred to is the Passover feast, 
what you would typically call the Last Supper that's recorded in Matthew and in the book of Mark. And it says, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Ish Kirioth means man and Kirioth means the, the city. So this is Judas who's from Kirioth, Simon's son to betray him. And now we go from this radiant light of love to this radical darkness. I don't know if you've ever been to a jewelry store. But typically when you go to a jewelry store, they'll place on the counter a black velvet background. And when they bring out the jewels, when they bring out the diamond, when you see this radiant gem in the background of the darkness, the gem becomes brighter. And, and that's the contrast that's being spoken of between Christ's love and this hatred. The black, dark stark hatred. And it's going to provide this backdrop, if you will, against the glorious life of Jesus. You see, we tend to forget that the context is this glorious Savior. You really can't understand humility until you understand the exaltation and the glory of the God. This We, we sing a song. Uh, Chris Tomlin's song where he talks about he wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and trembles at his word. The second person of the Trinity, this person who is truly God, isn't going to just simply wrap himself in light. He's going to wrap himself with a cloth and wash the feet of the disciples. By the way, did Jesus wash the feet of Judas? What do you think the answer is? D.A. Carson writes, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of of the betrayer. And that's remarkable. Because this is the person who's going to turn him in. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, you'll remember Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. What? Part of the miracle is the fact that Jesus washes his feet. Do you know what the other thing that is even perhaps more astonishing? Is Judas is unresponsive. How do you ignore? How do you reject? How do you push away that kind of love? That demonstration. We know about the greed and the ambition of Judas. We know that he's a thief. We know that he was pilfering pennies from the common purse. We know that greed and ambition had opened the door to Satan. And clearly Satan provides both the inspiration and the motivation to betray Jesus. But Judas and Satan are co-conspirators in the plot to kill Jesus. And soon we're going to discover Judas himself is going to be possessed by the devil. Look what it says in verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? The way that Jesus begins to deal with betrayal. He says, look, just get it over with. Let's just get this over with. And by the way, at least three things motivate Jesus at this point. Number one, the time is short. Think about it. Fifteen hours. Whatever he needs to teach the disciples, he needs to do it quickly. Number two, he loves his own. He is motivated by time. He's motivated by love. And in order to demonstrate that love, he has to do it now. And number three, Jesus knows that the enemy is closing in and that the enemy who is about to go forward with the plans of betrayal, that the disciples need to be strengthened and encouraged Right now, and the same is true for you. 
You know, we, we live in a world where we think that we've got plenty of time. We've got all day. We've got all this week. We've got all this month. We've got all this year. But what if I told you that the clock is ticking and the opportunity that you have to serve isn't growing but closing? You see, each and every one of us are on a timetable. And it could very well be that there is no time like the present for husbands to love their wives and for wives to love their husbands. There's no time like the present for families to minister to their children, for children to appreciate their moms and their dads. We sometimes forget that the time for service and the time for love will come to an end and those facts should motivate us to embrace persistent and persevering service, knowing that the enemy will bring the time of service to an abrupt and dramatic halt. And look what it says in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going to God, John is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus has come from the Father and He's going to return to the Father. Think about this for a moment. Jesus has come from the place of glory. He's come from the place of majesty. He's come from the place of being the awesome Creator of all things. He has come from the place of glory and exaltation and He is going to return to the place of glory and exaltation and that makes the sacrifice and the humility all the more shocking. It would be like if we, after church, we all decided to go to McDonald's and there's Bill Gates at the doll, ordering from the dollar menu. And you go, wouldn't it make more sense for you just to buy the whole restaurant? At least that way, you have something to do with the $27 billion. Do you realize that Bill Gates, just on the interest that is generated from his fortune, creates $31 million a month? Do you realize that means that if he just started dropping $100 bills, it would actually cost him more money to just stoop down and pick up the $100 bill than to just keep walking? I know. You're thinking, I would like to be behind Bill Gates as he's dropping $100 bills. That would be worth my while. That's the stark contrast that we're talking about. The true and the living God. Before he returns to his throne in glory. Is going to wash dirty feet. And by the way, washing feet was the menial task reserved for the lowest of slaves. Not just simply slaves, but the lowest of slaves. There seems to be some evidence that even in the Jewish culture and society, Jews would never require another Jew to wash someone's feet. This was a job for children or for Gentiles. And in this moment, we understand something from Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, we're given a glimpse into the mindset of the disciples before this last meal. It says that a dispute also arose among them, which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, again, it might be difficult for you to imagine what's happening here. So let me set the stage for you. In the first century of the Jewish culture, during the Passover, the way that they would have eaten dinner was on the floor. They didn't have tables. And I want you in your mind to picture a carpet, if you will, that's square. And on the carpet that's square, that is on the floor, you would have set out the dishes, if you will, that you were going to eat at the Passover meal. And they would recline at the table. That means they don't have chairs, they don't have a table, but they're all leaning forward, if you will, towards the carpet with their head in the front and their feet in the back. And with their head in the front and their feet in the back, they're forming a circle, if you will, around this square table. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus has already said, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Supper is ready and everyone's feet remain unwashed. 
and in verse 4 it says he rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. Now the word translated garments is a word that's used in the Greek language to describe the outer clothing in general. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, this is the way it's normally translated. It's translated in a number of places with using that exact term, outer garment, in contrast to the inner garment, which in the Greek language is chiton. So you have an outward garment, the hematia, the chiton is on the inside, so the picture is Jesus takes off the outer garment. He lays the outer garment aside. He still has what we would consider almost like a, a nighty, if you will, a thin veil that covers his body. And he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist. We live in a culture and a society that very rarely uses the term girded. We get the term girdle from that old English expression. And there are some girls who still understand what that word means. It's something that squeezes you. And so he takes the towel and he wraps it around his waist. It says in verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was Girded. Now, he pours water into a basin or a bowl. The word bowl here is, occurs only here. It's nipto. And if you can imagine, it's a, it's a kind of a pottery bowl that would look very much like a Smurf sink. And so you take this and he goes around and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And who do you suppose he washes first? We're not told. We're not told. It doesn't say he began with Judas and he moved on to John and then he did Peter and James. It doesn't say that we have no idea who he started with. If I were to guess, and it is a guess, it's completely speculation. I would guess he began with Judas. And Judas's head is at the table. And remember, he, he was next to him. And he takes his feet. And he takes his feet. And he has already humbled himself. And he begins to pour the water from the basin. And he begins to wipe his feet. The feet that are in just a few moments are going to run away from the supper. The feet that are going to carry the news to the religious authorities to kill him. The feet that is going to hurry back to arrest him. He takes these feet and he begins to wash them. And as he goes around the table, it says in verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter. And Peter says to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? You'll notice in the New Testament, Peter isn't always portrayed as being very bright. Yes, Peter, I am washing your feet. Now, you have to understand something. In the Roman and the Jewish culture, they had at least one thing in common. The superior was served by the inferior. Imagine after church you go to Macaroni Grill and you sit down at the table and the server comes by and says, Hi, I'm Abigail and I'm going to be your server. And you go, Hi, I'm Gino and no, I'm going to serve you. Abigail, have a seat right now because guess what? I'm going to go get you the pasta rustico. What would she do? No. N-O. You're the guest. I'm the server. Remember, in this culture and society, what is about to happen seems to be unthinkable. In verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing now, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter has zero idea. Peter thinks that the issue is dirty feet. And he has no idea that the real problem is dirty heart. 
He has no idea that the problem is pride. He has no idea that the problem is pettiness. He has no idea that Jesus is trying to teach humility and holiness. And the disciples were proud. It was evidenced not only by their unwillingness to serve each other, but of their constant boasting of who's going to be the greatest. And look what it says in verse 8. Peter says, you will never wash my feet. There's a double negative in the original language. It says, you will never, no, never wash my feet. And Jesus answers him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You see, Jesus prefers obedience to false modesty. The modern reader is typically not disturbed by Peter's brash outburst. You'll never wash my feet. Really? Really? Peter, are you comfortable telling Jesus what he can and can't do? We are, aren't we? Jesus, you can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. We can understand, based on the New Testament, that Peter would rightly go, look, you're holy and I'm not holy. You're perfect and I'm imperfect. We can understand how some people, in the face of absolute holiness, would say, don't touch me. Don't, t- don't touch me. But true humility, and listen carefully, true humility in part is a willingness to receive without embarrassment. And you see, this is why I mentioned to you earlier about moms and grandmas. Have you noticed that a mother is never humiliated or embarrassed about cleaning the baby? They just take him to the sink and there's the baby. What's not to love? It's when the baby turns 30 that you just go, this is gross. This is unacceptable. But true humility is a willingness to receive without embarrassment. And when you're dirty, you need to be clean. And look what Jesus says. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In effect, Jesus is saying, That in order to have union with Jesus and communion with Jesus, it's important that you allow Jesus to cleanse you. The response of Jesus serves several purposes. It must mean that Jesus is willing to correct the wayward disciple. It must mean that the disciples had fallen into the trap of believing that Jesus is going to be the king in an earthly kingdom. And they're so busy fighting over their position in the messianic kingdom that they... Forget once again the real issue that theirs is a wicked heart, a sinful heart, and that Jesus is coming to save sinners. God has a much bigger plan. Jesus wants to save people from their sin. He's not a conquering king. He is going to commit to a course of selfless sacrifice. Jesus is making clear what seems to be so muddy to so many people. Those who are cleansed by Him can have a relationship with Him. Washing, cleansing is a common biblical metaphor for spiritual cleansing. For washing a dirty heart. Only those who place their faith in Jesus as Lord and confess their sins are cleansed by Him. And once again, Peter gets it wrong. In verse 9, Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a hat, Lord, and, and give me golden gloves and give me a throne and jewelry and make me the head of the church. Is that what you read from this passage? Or do you read a person who thinks that he's right on the edge of another golden statement where earlier Peter had said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he expects Jesus to say, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Peter. 
but my Father in heaven. Simon Peter, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Oh, Simon Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you either. I wanted to give you a lecture about pride and the problems of pride. But now Peter is seeing what no one else is seeing. That really what I want to do is cleanse you from the top of your head down to the soles of your feet. But that's not what's happening. Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean and you are clean. But not all of you. Those who had experienced God's cleansing in Christ, the people who are saved, those people who see Jesus, who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they've experienced cleansing and redemption, but that wasn't true of everyone. Because there was someone there who had a wicked heart, conceit, arrogance, there was one notable exception. Jesus knew who would betray him. Look what it says in verse 11. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. And you know what's interesting about that? He's washing feet. And the expression of love becomes not just an expression of love and a demonstration of love, but it becomes a kind of a final warning. A kind of last appeal to Judas. Judas is who's right on the precipice of damnation. Judas isn't simply on the edge of executing his plans to betray Jesus. He's literally on the edge of eternity. By the way, what do you do when you find out you've been betrayed? Does the knowledge turn to shock and bitterness and anger and hatred? But look what it says in verse 11. He knew who would betray him. Let's just read the obvious. Does, Ju does Jesus understand that Judas is going to betray him? That seems simple enough, doesn't it? Yes, he knows that. Question. Does that make Jesus love Judas less? Or does he demonstrate the love even more? I'm going to suggest to you that one of the remarkable things about Jesus is that the more men and women hurt him, the more that he goes out of his way to demonstrate his love for them and his concern for them as they ignore him, as they ridicule him, as they revile him. And in that apathy and that indifference, Jesus presses closer and closer in constant reminders, in little demonstrations. You wake up in the morning and you hear the birds singing. You wake up in the morning and you're able to heat the water and put the tea bag in the cup. You wake up in the morning into a hot shower. You wake up in the morning and you see the common graces compounded one on top of the other. Jesus going out of His way to speak to you, to demonstrate His love for you. William Barclay writes, it is easy and so natural to resent wrong and grow bitter under insult and injury, but Jesus met the greatest injury and the supreme disloyalty with the greatest humility and supreme love. Is that how you deal with betrayal? We typically don't. And Judas remains unmoved. And again, Jesus isn't shocked. Jesus isn't surprised. In John 6, 70, Jesus earlier said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, but one of you is a devil? Judas represents everyone who Jesus offers light and life and who refused to respond in faith. 
You'll remember that Judas was one of the original twelve. And at the beginning, Jesus chose Judas to be with him in his public ministry. And like the other disciples, he saw the miracles of Jesus. He heard the teaching of Jesus. He drew close to them in those private times when Jesus explains his words to the twelve alone. Judas, along with the other disciples, watched Jesus slip away before dawn to pray to his father. And he still fails to respond. He looks like a follower of Jesus. He acts like a follower of Jesus. He talks like a follower of Jesus. And the other 11 don't suspect his inner core of sin and unbelief. You can be sitting right next to your husband. You can be sitting right next to your wife. You can be sitting right next to your children. You can be sitting right next to your friend. And you don't see the darkness, the pain, the unbelief, the doubt, the suspicion. And hidden in the heart of Judas, in the inner core of his being is greed and an uncaring attitude. And Satan's influence, coupled with his own arrogance, is going to result in a willingness to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Do you realize in the Old Testament that's payment for the death, not of a free person, but of a, but of a slave? And look what it says in verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, speaking of all of them, taken his garments and sat down again. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Verse 13, you call me Didaskalos, teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Jesus is the teacher. He's the supreme teacher. He is the Lord. He is the supreme Lord. I don't normally quote Jesse Jackson. But he said something so profound and so important that it bears repeating. Jesse Jackson said, you can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you don't go. You can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you don't go. Jesus isn't simply imparting to them information. But he's compelling them to engage in a journey. And in verse 14, it says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. The idea is, he's certainly giving an example. He's certainly pointing out that he's superior to all of them and that example and superiority aren't really enough. It was William Ward who said, the mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the superior teacher demonstrates, the great teacher inspires. It isn't just simply enough to know, and it isn't even enough to understand. It isn't even enough to see the demonstration take place. It is a motivation that is necessary. One Bible teacher says, to elevate the outward act of foot washing to the status of an ordinance is to minimize the important lesson that Jesus is teaching. The Lord gives an example of humility, not of foot washing. His concern is for what's inside of the heart, not what's on the outside of the right. The latter is meaningless apart from the former. You see, one of the things about humility is that it comes unannounced. If I said, next week we're going to have a foot washing ceremony. You know what we would have next week? The men would scrub their feet until they were red and raw. The women would go get a pedicure. And they would put fragrance on their feet. And the kids would stick mud between their toes. 
just to mess with you. Real humility remains unannounced. You'll note that Jesus doesn't say, Excuse me, announcement, I am going to now preach a sermon on humility. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't preach to them concerning the dangers of pride. And he certainly doesn't warn Judas about hell. If you were Jesus, don't you think you would have said to Judas, Look, Judas, just time out for a second. You're going to spend five minutes in hell right about now. And he drops dead. He's in hell. Jesus revives him. And then Jesus goes, okay, tell me again what it is you want to do. We laugh. And the reason why we laugh is because we are used to motivating and manipulating with the resources that we have at hand. But Jesus is not willing to motivate and manipulate, but rather he wants to transform the heart. In verse 16 it says, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. The word servant, by the way, is the Greek noun doulos. It comes from a root word which means bound or binding. This servant, this doulos, is not a slave because they have to be, but because they want to be. In the ancient culture, when you'd served your time or you were able to purchase your freedom, often you were given a chance to remain in the service of the master. And if you preferred to remain in the service of the master, you would take your head and you would put it up against the doorpost and you would take an awl and a hammer and they would put a hole through your ear and they would place a ring in the ear indicating that you are a slave by choice. And in verse 17, it says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And once again, Jesus gives three reasons why service is for everyone. Number one, all believers serve because that's the example of Jesus. Each of the disciples would have been more than happy to wash Jesus' feet. Our difficulty isn't in serving Jesus. Our difficulty is serving each other. Well, what if there's a person whose feet I don't really want to wash their feet? Tell me about this person whose feet you don't want to wash. He hurt me. He betrayed me. Is Jesus willing to wash the feet of a person who is about to hurt him and betray him? All believers serve, not just because of an example, but Jesus says because all believers believe that Jesus is greater than they are. We are less than Jesus in mission and in work. And number three, all believers serve because all believers have the right and honor to enter into the Master's joy. Look at verse 17 again. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The way that the passage is given in the original language, it carries with it the idea of joy. It is the joy of a continuous happiness. Happy are you if you do these things, that is, exercise humility Work towards holiness. Abandon conceit and hypocrisy. It says, oh, how happy you are. Not if you just do them, but if you keep on doing them. Just knowing the truth isn't enough to satisfy. You have to know it and be willing to do it. If you walk in humility. And continue to walk in humility. If you walk in holiness and continue to walk in holiness if you walk in selflessness instead of hypocrisy and conceit then something happens inside of you joy wells up inside of you the king of heaven serves the way to greatness is ministry 
The way to power is humility. The way to position is serving. The way to ruling is giving. And Jesus puts everything and turns it on its head. But they're not going to get it. Most of them. And Judas, even with this amazing demonstration of humility, an amazing call to holiness, a remarkable plan to abandon hypocrisy, wants to continue in conceit, in arrogance, in darkness, in selfishness. Because Jesus, Jesus hasn't turned out to be what he had hoped. It's not too late for you, though. You can embrace humility. You can long for holiness. You can abandon hypocrisy by simply agreeing to do what Jesus would have you to do. Serve Him now rather than later. Serve Him because the time is short. Serve Him because there's going to come a time when you're going to wake up and the opportunity is going to be passed. Serve Him because He's greater than you are. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for Jesus. Lord, we know that the lessons of humility and the lessons of holiness are hard learned. We don't even for a moment pretend that we've learned all the lessons that we need to know. But Lord, we pray that as we continue our walk through the last hours of Jesus' life, that Lord, we would be willing to face the circumstances of our own heart. Lord, will we serve? Will we limit the service? Will we pick and choose who we serve? Or Lord, will we allow your grace and your mercy, your patience and your humility to be the example that we're willing to embrace in order to do all that you've asked us to do? Lord, we know that we suffer from humility deficit disorder. Pride. And the only cure is a confident, faithful commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and a willingness to put sin aside and to walk with Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.